the children of Israel worshiped the Lord, Moses had been up on the mountain. He'd received the Ten Commandments. He came down, it says this in Exodus 20, When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpets and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, we will listen But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for themselves God, for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifices on it, uh, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep, your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And they worship the Lord. We fast forward to John chapter four, the woman at the well. And this is what she said to Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming, and He is called Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. So we don't see the thunder and the lightning and the smoke and the flashes, but I hope that we maintain a holy fear of the Lord and recognize that He desires our worship. And the question is, because He doesn't change. Malachi said, I'm the Lord your God, I change not. Is our understanding of God, is my perception of who He is, is your perception of who He is as holy as it should be? Or am I coming to an event where I'm just a passive participant Or am I considering my God and I choose to worship Him in spirit and in truth? That's what we're doing this morning. Amen? Amen. We're in James chapter 4. Let me start with a question this morning. Do you want to be resisted by God or one who receives His grace? Well, that's kind of a dumb question, isn't it? (laughs) In church. And yet... And yet we might find that sometimes we position ourselves to receive his resistance. Let's see how we do according to James chapter 4. This morning, really, instead of a preaching time, this is going to be a little bit more of a Bible study kind of message. A little bit unusual for me. Um, James 4 addresses a huge issue, uh, either being what he calls a friend of the world or a friend of God. And the one... James declares, positions a person as an enemy of God. And that would be the friend of the world is an enemy of God. Um, The passage in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, uh, includes a verse that is challenging to understand. 
And that's verse 5. We're going to try and tackle that this morning. We might not solve the problem. We won't. Um, but at least it can begin to get us thinking about it with a little bit of a focus as well. Uh, maybe you do this sometimes. Uh, I've done it as well. When you read your Bible, you come across a passage of Scripture, and there's a verse in there that seems at first glance that it's a little tough. And maybe you go back and you read it again, and, and you don't really catch what he's trying to say, and so you push through and you try and grab a hold of some truth around the verse that's tough, and then you just kind of move on. Anybody do that? Anybody honest enough to admit that you do that? Uh, I know we do. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 deals with a lot of the facts of the resurrection. He speaks of the gospel very early in chapter 15, and then he gives a lot of facts of the resurrection. And then he goes and throws verse 29 in there, which is really difficult. Where he's, It's kind of difficult. Where he says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? And we think, oh my word, what do we, I mean, we don't do that here. Um, what am I supposed to do with that? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And it's a little difficult, so we try not to ignore it, or at least we shouldn't. Maybe you go back and you read it again, um, but we focus on other facts about the resurrection, and then the next thing you know, we've forgotten about chapter 15, verse 29, which has a difficult verse. And we can do that in James, chapter 4, verse 5, has one of those as well. Um, another example would be Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. We're not going to read it. Uh, that's the one that speaks of the Nephilim, certainly unique, the sons of God cohabiting with the daughters of men, uh, creating a giant race, a little tough. Um, it requires a little bit more study, and so sometimes we just push through. And the next thing you know, we read it again the next time, and we push through. And pretty soon we're doing that pretty consistently. Here in James chapter 4, Especially in verse 5, we find one of those challenging passages. Um, it's a phrase that's part of verse 5 in the English Standard Version, which is the one that's in the pew in front of you. He says, he yearns jealously over the spirit he made to dwell in us. And the way the English Standard Version uh, places it there, it's a little easier to understand according to their uh, interpretation. Um, the New American Standard Bible and some others says it this way. He jealously desires the Spirit, capital S, which He has made to dwell in us. And so by their translation, they're implying that the Spirit that He's talking about would be the Holy Spirit. And so the question comes, is he, excuse me, is He talking about man's Spirit? Is He talking about the Holy Spirit? In the one translation you have small s, in another translation you have the big S. And so sometimes we just push through. And we start grabbing a hold of, but God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, and we hold on to that, but we forget to go back and try and tackle verse 5 and what it says. Well, what is he saying here? What is Scripture saying to us? Is this the Holy Spirit? As some translations seek to identify him by capitalizing the word spirit, um, New King James Bible does that. The New American Standard Bible does that. The Holman Christian Standard Bible does that. Um, the English Standard Version does not, neither does the NIV, neither does a version that I like to go back to and reference, the American Standard Version. So what's up here? Does it matter? Is there anything that we could benefit for our spiritual walk with a clear understanding? And the obvious answer to that is yes, we can, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable. And so that's what we want to try and do this morning. Um, but I want us to remember the context, and so I'm in James chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through uh, 4. What causes quarrels 
And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And we remember that James is writing to Jews that had been scattered, those who had professed the name of Christ, and he seems to be challenging uh, the genuineness of the faith of some. And so he gives things that should fall in line if there's a genuineness to their faith. And one is that there not be fights and quarrels among them, that they not be friends of the world, um, because that places someone as an enemy of God. Nowhere in Scripture, we've said this, we'll say it again, nowhere in Scripture do we find those who genuinely seek and follow God called His enemies. That's not something that you find in the Old Testament. It's not something that you find in the New Testament. It's not something that you find for those who have a genuine, real walk with the Lord, but trip and fall down for, because of sin. Uh, on the contrary, those who genuinely seek the Lord are called friends of God, brothers, saints, beloved, children of God, believers, adopted, elect, chosen. Um, but here in James chapter 4, verse 1 through 4, the description is one who, as a friend of the world, is declared to be an enemy of God. And then the text says, verse 5 and 6, and I want to read two different translations. Or do you suppose, is it to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace that it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then the New American Standard Bible says, Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit, capital S, which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So whatever is being stated in James 4, 5, and we're going to try and clarify that, or at least begin our thinking process on, process on that so we, can, so we can begin to meditate on it. Um, but he gives a greater, uh, he has made to dwell within us, uh, where we go, um, or at least to begin the thinking about that. We can see three things in, in this passage. Scripture speaks something with a purpose. Well, we know that. Everything that God speaks is going to be with a purpose. The second thing is that there's a yearning or a jealousy, jealousy or a strong desire for something. So Scripture speaks with a purpose. There's a yearning or a jealousy for something. And the third, it identifies the something as the spirit, whether it's the small s spirit of man or the capital S Holy Spirit um, that dwells within us. All right. The English Standard Version says, He, God, yearns jealously, jealously desires. This word yearns is an intense craving. It's a strong desire. It's stronger than your, your stomach is grumbling because you haven't eaten for a while and you're really hungry. It's stronger than that. He yearns. He has an intense craving, a strong desire, a great longing after. Even it can be defined as a lusting for, not in the negative sinful sense, but in the sense of a thirst or a strong urge. He yearns jealously or he jealously desires. God yearns jealously. 
His jealousy isn't something new or undeclared in Scripture. And what I want to do is I want to look at a couple of places in Scripture that talk about God and His jealousy, all right? Um, God and His jealousy. We've, it seems in James, He takes us back to the law quite often. Um, if, we, if we break it in one point, we're, we're, you know, we've broken the whole law. Let's go back to the law and see where God speaks of being jealous. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 Um, Listen to these descriptions of God and His jealousy. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in the heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am what? I'm a jealous God. Um, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So if we do that, the description is that he visits the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. So that would be dad, and then his son or daughter, and then their son or daughter, and then their sons or daughters. So that would go all the way down to the great-grandchildren because of those who hate the Lord because he's a jealous God. And that's for those in this particular setting, that's for those who create some sort of an image and bow down to or worship that image. Can I just do a little pause here? Sometimes we can slide into things like that and not even realize that we slide into it. Angels are a big deal. Okay, I mean, they're a big deal in scripture. They're a big deal in decorating as well. And maybe you've got angels around your house. There's nothing wrong with decorating. But if you begin to think those angels are watching over me, all of a sudden they become a a carved image. And that's no good. Same thing with a cross necklace. Nothing wrong with a cross necklace unless you think that I'm more graced by God because I'm wearing cross earrings or a cross necklace and then all of a sudden something that man has created has, has snuck in and starts taking the place of something that God and only God wants to do. And he said, I'm jealous. I am a jealous God. That's what he said in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, I'm not going to look at it, but if you want to see an example of it happening, uh, mark it down as Deuteronomy 32, verse 21 and following. In Exodus 34, we find God talking with Moses. This is after Moses had received the Ten Commandments the second time. And this one just blows my mind. He came down from the mountain. The people were already lifting up golden images and worshiping them. And Moses breaks the commandments that God wrote wrote with his own finger. How do you do that? But that's what he did. Moses needed some anger management, and a little bit later on, God gives it to him. But he, but he broke them. God gave it to him again. This is after the second time. And this is what he said. Behold, I'm driving out from before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you're going, lest it be a snare in your midst, but you shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. That's him describing himself. My name is Jealous, one of the many names that God has, and that's how he describes himself. So here we see the idea of jealousy being God not wanting his children to give what he merits to other gods with a small g. We see that part of jealousy. Then there's the side of jealousy that's also a longing for, a yearning, a desire for, like he says in James 4, the spirit of man, whether that's the Holy Spirit or the small s, the spirit of man. We're going to talk about that in a minute. 
In Song of Solomon, jealousy is described like this. Song of Solomon being the love song between Solomon and the Shulamite. Um, also a picture, I believe, between Christ and the church. Uh, song of Solomon, jealousy is described like this. It's as fierce as the grave. And when the grave takes somebody, it doesn't give them back up. Um, Jesus resurrected Jesus and only Jesus couple of others through God's story. Um, jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. And that's where we find a verse that a lot of us know, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly, dis- utterly despised. And so what we see here is we see jealousy and love just kind of mingled together. And that's what we find when God says that I'm a jealous God. And the things that you should give to me, I don't want to go to anyone else. I have a yearning and a strong desire for you. I find over in Matthew 23, Jesus expressing jealousy as he laments over Jerusalem. More specifically, not just the city square, but those who reside within Jerusalem. And this is what he said. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, my longing, my yearning, my intense desire, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Not only during Jesus' earthly days did he desire that, but also the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament desired to gather God's people together as well. As well. But they were not willing. Um, very similar to the individuals, I think, in James chapter 4 that we just read about who have fights and quarrels among them that demonstrate that the faith that they say they have is a, an intellectual faith, maybe even something they could quote a scripture about, but the genuineness of it coming from their heart is another story. Um, See, you, you're, and then Jesus says, see, your house is left to you desolate. I say to you, you shall not see me. Uh, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks of a jealousy as well for the church that's there, the Corinthian believers. He says this, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, kind of like wisdom. Do you remember we talked about wisdom from James? There's a godly wisdom and an earthly wisdom. Seems that there's a heavenly jealousy and a man type of jealousy as well. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, uh, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that would be Jesus in spiritual life, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds might be corrupted by the simplicity, uh, that your minds may have may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. And so the picture there is they started thinking, I need to do this in order to be pleasing to God, and I have to do this in order to be pleasing to God, and, and if I do this, surely God's going to smile upon me. And the reality is there are some spiritual disciplines, but the reason that God would smile upon any of us is because of Jesus Christ and his grace, period. And that's all it is. And that's significant. Um, Paul mentioned this jealousy. God is jealous, he said. His name is jealous. He doesn't apologize for it. Um, Back in James chapter 4, verse 5, it says this. We need to clear something up. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously, jealously over the spirit? The challenge is when you try and find this place where the scripture says this, you can't find it. 
Um, you oftentimes, many, many, many times, hundreds of times in the New Testament, you find New Testament writers quoting Old Testament verses. Um, but when we try and find what James is saying here with a cross reference or whatever tool it is that you might use, we don't find that. And all of the commentators agree to that as well. And so what the conclusion is, is rather than a direct quote from the Old Testament, which is oftentimes the case, what James is doing is giving this general picture that speaks about God and his his grace. And so it's a general picture rather than a specific quote. I want us to attempt to untangle uh, the following phrase from chapter 4, verse 5, and I want us to read three different translations in, in order to do that. The one that we've already read, the English Standard Version, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. The New King James Version says, the spirit, capital S, who dwells in us yearns jealously. And the author American Standard Version says, Doth the spirit which he made to dwell in us long unto envy? And so that's just a little bit of a different twist. Let me read that one again because I see a lot of frowns. Eyes squinting. Does the spirit which he made to dwell in us long unto envy? And what I want to do, and commentators say this is a difficult verse, and we're not going to solve it this morning. Uh, and they haven't solved it either. Um, what I want us to do is look at three possible understandings of that particular phrase of, of James chapter 4, verse 5, because it's, a, it's got a significant spiritual truth. And I think if we, if we seek to understand it, we come away uh, appreciating God more and recognizing how much He, how much he seeks us as well. Um, what, some say that the Spirit, uh, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, the some say the Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit, and they go there because there's a capital S, and that makes us go there quickly. Um, however, we're going to find that in the originals, the S wasn't capital, capitalized. Some say the Holy Spirit. Some say the Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit. He jealously desires or or yearns jealously for mankind, believers even, to break entirely with the world and to be wholly consecrated and devoted to God. That's a good message. It might not be a good understanding of the verse, but it's a good message. So the conclusion is good, um, but, but it might not be rightly divided. The problem with that particular understanding that the Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit is this. It seems James is referring to those who have positioned themselves as enemies of God. Love the world, you position yourself as an enemy of God, and then if the Holy Spirit would be referred to here, he's saying that they possess the Holy Spirit as well. And as those who don't know Christ, they don't possess the Holy Spirit. That's a gift that's given to believers at the point of salvation. Uh, also, it seems so James is referring to those who have positioned themselves as enemies of God, who also need the more grace from chapter 4, verse 6 that's spoken of, or they will be resisted by God. And that is a really strong word that we're going to look at here in a little bit. Resisted being strong, something that we don't see describing believers anywhere um, in the New Testament. So that's a possibility. I think it's not a very good possibility, but it's one of the possibilities. I probably read more for this message than I read for most messages. Uh, no, I did read more for this message than I read for most messages. Um, and that doesn't seem to be a great, a great possibility for understanding that particular phrase. The second possibility seems to be better, and let me quote a commentator. Although the New American Standard Bible begins the quotation with he, now this is going to mess with you a little bit, all right? Although the New American Standard Bible begins the quotation with he jealously desires, 
The word he is not in the Greek text, but is supplied by the translators. And that's not uncommon in Latin-based languages where it's, it's a, a assumed that it's a speaking of the, of the subjects that's there. So that's not completely uncommon. The capitalization of spirit is also arbitrary since the original Greek manuscript, manuscripts did not capitalize. There's some more things that are said, and, then I, and I would be glad to forward it to you if you like. And then I drop down where it says... And if James were speaking to unbelievers, as he seems to be here, he's saying that the Spirit which he made to dwell in us would not apply to them because they would not be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Let me quote just a little bit more. One cannot be dogmatic, and that's important. One cannot be dogmatic, but in context, it seems that the authorized version or the King James Version uh, rendering is preferable. The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy or yearns jealously. And so what, he, what this particular individual is saying is that, is that that American Standard Version of 1909, I think is what, 1809, 1909, one of those, uh, is, is uh, the better indication. Um, James would therefore be saying in effect, don't you know that you yourselves are living proof of the truthfulness of Scripture, which clearly teaches that the natural man has a spirit of envy. And so what he's saying is that the spirit and the envy there is the natural man, and that's why I fight and I, and I murder and I covet and I lust um, because of that natural spirit that's win, with, within me. And I added to that, um, that's why there would be quarrels and fighting among them, and James follows with uh, chapter 4, verse 6, where he says, uh, God gives more grace, more than that spirit of envy, and he's able to cleanse that, if this would be a good uh, understanding. And then he says uh, th- that interpretation clearly is consistent with James's emphasis in a larger passage. And so that's two options. The third is this. And I probably lean here and kind of go back and forth between number three and number two. And I'm just meditating on it and thinking about it. And then I'm just looking for other places in Scripture that, that support whatever it is that that teaching might be. And, and this is interesting because neither, neither two or three uh, is going re- to uh, 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 knock down anyone's faith in the Lord. And, and so what we do is we support the truth from other places in Scripture. Third possibility is this. It seems reasonable. This would be the way it's expressed in the English Standard Version. He, God, yearns jealously over the Spirit, man's Spirit, not the Holy Spirit, uh, that He made to dwell in us. That is, it's God who yearns jealously over the Spirit, our spirit, which he placed in us and made to dwell in us. Let me just, I'm not going to read them, but let me give you a couple of verses that speak about God giving man a spirit, not the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11 speaks of that. Job chapter 32 verse 8 speaks of that. Um, That would have happened when God breathed life into Adam back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. This understanding would make the phrase in verse 5 be a phrase that speaks to the need of salvation of the need of regeneration and forgiveness of sin, um, similar to the second one as well, with God giving more grace to those who humble themselves, but to those who choose not to humble themselves but walk in pride, He resists. It would mean that God seeks and desires a relationship with mankind in general, Similar to Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together, but you were not willing. And so we see Jesus desiring that, and yet we see the unwillingness on the part of the Jews that were present also and had been for some time. 
or the phrase that Jesus speaks in parable in the parable in Matthew 22 likening the kingdom of heaven to a marriage and they were told to go out into the highways and byways and fill up the house and somebody came in and didn't have the appropriate clothing and he was thrown out and Jesus concluded that parable by saying many are called but few are chosen he, he said the same thing in chapter 20 and verse 16, many are called, few are chosen. Or it would also mean that John 3.16, with God so loved the world, the world being the entire world, all of mankind, and not just those who would call upon the name of the Lord like the more rigid Calvinists would want to speak. Or Peter writing that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And let's be honest, our theology our understanding of who God is and salvation and the chosen is going to affect how we look at James chapter 4, verse 5. And I want to just say a word about that. We've got to be really careful. There's a tension between our theology and our Bible reading and our Bible study, and that's a tension that's okay. I've come to Scripture understanding it the way I believe it, and then I read Scripture and I use those as proof texts to support what it is that I believe. Or I come to Scripture and I look at the Bible and it might mess with my theology and so I let my Bible study determine what it is that I believe. And so there's this tension that goes on. And that's part of the problem with what do we do with James chapter 4 verse 5. This seems to be a pretty good option as well for what he's saying that God earnestly desires, he yearns for the spirit that he's placed within mankind. Should this be the, under, the best understanding, it's important to note that at some point, and this is significant, that at some point a person's defiance against God, and it's God who determines the when, he can draw a line of clear resistance. And he says in verse 6, God gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. Pharaoh would be a really, good, a really good picture or illustration of this. Back when the children of Israel were trying to leave Egypt after they'd been there for over 400 years, in the beginning Moses would bring a plague and it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then he'd bring another plague and it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And another, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And I can't remember if it's the fifth or sixth one, but it switched it. And then it starts saying, and God hardened his heart. And God hardened his heart. So somewhere there's a, an end to the patience and the grace of God. And you and I don't have the ability to say when that's going to happen or how that happens. He's God. It's his choice. He gets to do that. But it's important that we, have to, that we remember that. Uh, God resists the proud. So there's a yearning for man's spirit on the one hand, and there's a resistance on the other hand. I'm quoting, in whatever way the verse is interpreted, chapter 4, verse 5, um, there, <clears throat> in whatever way the verse is interpreted, James seems to be saying that unbelievers uh, who are in a permanent state of spiritual conflict with God, not only are his enemies, they love the world, they're enemies of God, but they also reflect the hostility, that hostility by not trusting and obeying his Lord, uh, the Lord or his word. And then James writes verse 6, and he says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. More grace. 
sufficient grace to overcome the sinful spirit of man that has positioned itself against God. God gives a sufficient amount of grace to overcome that and, and to be able to forgive that when, the, when it's humbly received. When humbly received, His grace proves that it's abundant, that it's sufficient. As the hymn says, His grace is greater than all my sin. Grace that is greater than the pulling and the pressure and the enticing of the world. Lamentations speaks of God's grace and His mercy, His goodness, His loving kindness being new every single morning. By grace you're saved through faith. That's not of yourself. It's the gift of God. So grace would be the gift tied with a bow around it. And faith would be the thing that opens that gift. It's God that gave it to us. God gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He opposes or he resists the proud. This is really interesting. He's opposed to or he resists or he stands against. This is a military word used to depict an army in full array ready for battle. What James is likely saying is that God is in battle array, as it were, against the proud because pride is the root of all other sins that come across of all other issues it's not always manifested so that you and i can see it but god sees straight to our heart his word is able to cut to the to the depths of our heart as well can you imagine standing against the army of russia if you're in 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 ukraine can you imagine God in all of his battle array positioning itself against you? That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? And so I started the message with, do we want to be resisted by God or do we want to receive God's grace? And in order to receive his grace, we have to resist the world and becoming friends of the world. One gets one thing, the other gets the other. He resists the proud the arrogant, the boastful, those supposing themselves to be above others, more insightful, always have, having the cutting edge, and especially above the need to humble oneself before God in submission to His Word. But, but He gives grace to the humble. I want to read a story, five or six verses, and as I read this story that Jesus told, I want you to identify the characteristics of the proud or the characteristics of the humble. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, proud, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So let me just stop. I'm going to read. I'm not going to stop a lot. They're both in the temple. And I know there's a difference between the Old Testament temple in Jesus' day and the church today, and there's some similarities and there's some differences, but they're both there. They're both in the temple, so they're in a good place. But there's a huge difference between these two individuals. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God gives grace to the humble. Do we want to receive God's grace? It goes hand in hand with humility. It isn't hand in, and and don't be proud of your humility, all right? It goes hand in hand with humility. God resists the proud, but give, that was a joke, by the way. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. His kindness, his mercy, his love and favor, his forgiveness and blessings and abundance, spiritual victory and hope. Grace justifies us before holy God. Grace provides us access to God and fellowship with Him. Grace grants us immeasurable spiritual riches. Grace helps us in our every need. Grace is the reason behind every deliverance that we receive. By grace, we were we were preserved, we are preserved and comforted and encouraged and strengthened. He gives more grace. He gives grace to the humble. And so the question that I have for you this morning and the question that I had for me as I was studying this as well is, where does God find you? Does he find you saying, I'm glad I'm not like other men and I sure do this and this and this and it's for God, but I'm kind of glad that I do it a little bit. I'm glad I'm not like him. Or does he find you beating your chest and not even looking at the holiness of God and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I think no matter how long we've been in the Lord, that that should be the heartbeat that we have because the spirit of God indwells us and his word conforms us and transforms us. And so we recognize the need for God's grace. If you're here this morning and you've never, ever said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Today would be a great day to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Um, James chapter 4 verse 5 has a difficult verse in it, but I think there's something worth demorando. Uh, where is my wife? What is demorando? Uh, I think there's, it's worth pausing and seeking to understand it. I could have asked Leo too. I think it's worth pausing and seeking to understand it because we come away recognizing I can be the recipient of God's grace or I could be the recipient of God lining himself up in military array and resisting me. We don't want to be there, do we? None of us wants to be there. But it also requires not just this verbal, I believe Jesus, but this heart transformation that shows the demonstration and the characteristics of a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you have that this morning, and I hope that, that he speaks to your heart as well. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you. As human beings, as mankind, it is so easy to be proud. Even as your child. So we ask that your spirit and your word check us every time we're tempted to that. And help us recognize that I am what I am by the grace of God. I do what I do by the grace of God. Apart from the grace of God, where would I be? Father, I pray that would be a prayer from every heart that has submitted itself to you. And the Lord, we pray for the people that are here, friends, they've come to sit under the teaching of the word of God, that you would use your word and your spirit to speak to their heart if there's a need to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. We recognize it's a gift of God. 
We recognize that you, as God, get to choose the method that that happens, and you chose faith. By grace, are you saved through faith? We don't want to be resisted by you and your military array. We want to be recipients of the grace that you offer. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.